Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love Welcome, and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Coming at you on this episode is a interview with Sheila Montgomery, who is the EVP of sales and strategic client management at QTS Realty Trust. I have chosen to interview Sheila because she is a dynamic personality who has influenced me in my career when I spent two years working at QTS back in the day. She was my boss's boss and someone who I turned to for advice on a regular basis because she knew the business inside and out. Um, and what I learned in, in working just in corporate America in general was knowing those who knew how to navigate the internal political structure of a company uh, was extremely valuable to help me navigate the internal corporate structure of a company. And she was definitely that person having spent uh, many years there prior to me even joining the company and also being part of a company that was acquired by QTS. So she, she kind of knew where the skeletons were buried and how much concrete was sitting on top of them. We have a great conversation coming up for you around women in technology, sales, uh, sales leadership, managers, sales managers, what it takes to be successful in those roles within the company and her experience uh, having managed hundreds of, of sales leaders in the industry over the last 20 years. Um, we dig into the future of the company, what the M&A is going on in the industry, uh, how, how all of the, that activity is affecting our space. Um, it's just a great, great conversation that I thoroughly enjoy that I know you will too. So I will leave it at that and hope you enjoy the interview with Sheila Montgomery. Sheila Montgomery, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the I Love Data Centers podcast. <laughs> thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Sheila, you have had a 20-year career in the data center and high-tech industry, which is pretty awesome. Um, it, it, is it true that the second you kind of bounced out of, out of college, you kind of jumped straight into technology, or did you... What were you doing before you got into, you know, the industry of selling software, hardware, and, and data center stuff? Yeah. Well, first of all, 20 years is an overwhelming thing to hear because I don't feel that old, but <laughs> <laughs> it is accurate. Um, yeah, I, I apologize. It was like, no, I'm, that's okay. I'm How old are you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was a prodigy. No, um, no, I, uh, so I did not jump right into technology. I, um, I had gone to graduate school for international um, 
uh, I went to School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia, and I wanted to work in the government. And I, I, I didn't really specifically know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be sort of in management and, and you know, policymaking and stuff like that. So as it happened, I went into a job that was appropriate for that. I went to go work for the Department of Commerce um, in Washington, D.C., and I... I, I had been part of a uh, an intern program where you got to rotate from division to division so you could try things out over a two-year period, which was a really neat program, and I enjoyed it. Um, and what I ended up doing was going to different industry desks. So I, at one point, I was on the uh, Office of Aerospace Industry Desk, and then I eventually landed in the Office of Computer Hardware and Software, which is what it was called back eons ago. And one of the things I did while I was working there was write for the U.S. Industrial Outlook, and I was signed a couple of really interesting sectors to follow. One of them was um, virtual reality. One of them was artificial intelligence. And then the last one, believe it or not, was called the online industry because the internet industry hadn't really been born yet. And that was really how I got introduced to this area because three years into my career with the federal government, it became clear to me that this is not what I wanted to be doing. I love the federal government. I was surrounded by a lot of really smart driven people. But the truth is that job would have been much better for me had I already had a, couple, a bunch of kids and like a, a, this big booming life where I wanted a nine to five job. And I didn't. I didn't want a nine to five job. I wanted to work really, really hard and I wanted to make money and I wanted to pay my dues. So it wasn't a great fit for me at the time. And I had been reading a lot about what I wanted to do. And I read some kind of statistic somewhere that said that 90% of CEOs came out of sales. And I thought, well, if that's the skill you need to have to be successful in the world, even if I don't become a CEO, I'm certainly going to need those skills somewhere. So why don't I see if I can get a sales job somewhere? And I looked into the companies I was following on in the U.S. Industrial Outlook, um, and one and they happened. To, many of them happened to be in Northern Virginia, which is where I was living, you know, Washington D.C. And so I went and I got a sales job at PSINet, which was um, you know a newcomer to the uh, to that field at the time, and uh, it was it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So back backtracking a little bit mm-hmm. to provide some context. Yeah. I I knew you when you were living up in New York and to provide some even more context, uh Sheila, you and I worked together when we were both at QTS. Yeah. Uh when I did my my stint there from 2009 to 2011. And w- am I correct in that you were in New York full-time back then? Yes, yes. I'm actually a, a New Yorker, for, you know, for all intents and purposes. I moved to New York when I was 10 years old. I went to high school, college, and graduate school in New York. And then I moved to D.C. for six years. And then I ended up moving back to New York. So um, I was there um, up until last year, actually. So. Gotcha. And now you go between Atlanta and New York, or are you primarily exactly. in? I spend most of my time now in, uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, but um, I'd say on a monthly to six-week um, basis, I go back to New York. So with that as a base drop, what what I'm really curious about is were you exposed to when you were going through high school and college, was was the concept of the internet kind of a, a new new thing? Um that you were just starting now to Now you're really with? gonna date me. <laughs> sorry, because there to. was no, that's okay. There was no internet when I was in high school. Um that it wasn't even a concept. I will tell you that probably the most important class I ever took in high school at my father's 
insistence was typing. And I am so grateful that to this day, I, I'm going to encourage my own children to do this. Um, but typing was, was probably the greatest thing that I ever did because, you know, you're still typing to this day on computers. Um, but no, I, in college, computers were much more prevalent and I was using a computer by the time I got to college. But even then, we were not Sent, that we were not sending emails. My first experience with email was once I was in the federal government. Um, and that's when I, I started doing it. And, and just to give you actual dates now, um, that was in about 92, maybe 93. I graduated from graduate school in 1991. With PSINet specifically, walking into that company, mm. what, did they have any kind of formal training to kind of get you up to speed with what the heck it was that they did and the customers that they served? And like, they, what, what did that look like? Or was it just kind of figure it out on your own and here's your quota, go at it? No, thank God they did. They had to because so few people understood it. The vast majority of my job when I was in sales in that at that company was helping businesses understand what they were going to need. So they absolutely trained us. And it was still somewhat in a startup phase at the time. I think I was like one of the four, I mean, maybe not startup. I was a 400th employee, um, which which was still a, a sizable company, but, um, but it, it still was, it, you know, we were one of those exponentially growing companies. So it was all happening really quickly. So I wouldn't say it was the most formalized training program. You know, the head of sales was the one delivering the training and um, he was extremely passionate. Um, but, but we took a lot of courses on, you know, how you set up your local area network, you know, you know, TPCIP, <laughs> um, you know, things like that, that we needed to understand when we were trying to um, solution what people needed coming into the into the mix, because especially at that time when it felt like there were maybe not as many standards established, that type of thing. So who, who was your primary audience that you were selling to at that time? And, and to be clear, yeah. PSINet, or as a backdrop, PSINet was one of the first commercial ISPs, right? Yeah. And so they were, yeah, they oh, were found, truly yeah. mm -hmm. training and trying to evangelize what the heck it was the internet um, did to convince people that they should be and needed to be leveraging it in the first place. Absolutely. So yes, we were selling, our primary product was selling any kind of connection to quote unquote the internet. And so we were selling dial-up connections for companies. We were selling like blocks of IP addresses. We were selling, uh, eventually we started selling DSL, but that wasn't even a product when I started. Uh, we sold T1 uh, connections. And every now and then, if you got really lucky, you'd sell a T3. Um, so that was sort of the, and then we had firewalls and things like that. Our, my primary business target were, um, I'd say primarily, it really was any business, but small and medium-sized businesses were the ones that really needed the help that we had to provide to them. And um, and I started initially selling to the West Coast, which was really interesting for me, a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a different world um, between the two coasts, as I've learned, having now lived on both <laughs> coasts. So you were, were you at PSINet when things imploded in 2001? I was. So I, I, I feel like I've always had very interesting timing with, um, with, with my jobs, but I joined PSINet two weeks before we went public. And that was great timing because I got in on the ground floor. I was there for, I want to say, five years. And I left as soon as we declared bankruptcy um, because I couldn't, I was in sales and, you know, it doesn't matter if they're going to pay you lots of money just to sit in your seat. I, I really needed to be selling. So um, yeah, right around the time that they filed is when I went and got a new job. And to, to your comment about joining companies at interesting times, knowing your background, you most definitely have gone through lots of interesting mergers and acquisitions 
over the last, um, you know, throughout the course of your career. And could you kind of lead lead our our listenership through what that looked like? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it has always been, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate how valuable experience is. Because while you're going through these things, you don't have any context for it. But um, so I, you know, PSINet was the first, you know, tech company that I worked for. And we acquired a number of companies during that time. Some were successful, some were wholly not successful. Um, And then, of course, we went through that booming, you know, your stock is worth a zillion dollars period. And then, you know, we were worth nothing. Um, I left there and I went to Digex, which was actually a hosting company. Um, And that was also interesting because two weeks after I joined the company, uh, it was announced that MCI was going to take a 60% ownership stake in the company, which really changed everything. The guy who hired me left the company. Um, You know, there was just a lot of change and a lot of policy change. And then, of course, MCI um, was acquired by WorldCom. And then as soon as, you know, three years later, at the end of so I was at Digix for three years, and at uh, at three years later, uh, WorldCom bought them out entirely, and that's when I left that company um, because I really didn't want to work for WorldCom. Um, just culturally, it wasn't a great fit. I left WorldCom to go uh, to Globix, and Globix was in. Um, they they had already established bankruptcy. They had pre they had had a prepackaged bankruptcy. They had exited that, and now they were in a, a I want to say a building mode. But the truth is, they were in a mode where the investors wanted to just get their money back, and that was going to take a couple of years. So I came in to help you know help with the sales organization, help with sales, et cetera. And um, sure enough, by about three years later, we were acquired by QTS, and that was bar none the best thing that ever happened to me from a career standpoint because. QTS, which I did not know at the time, of course, but um, QTS was a growing company. It was an ex- they were in an exciting space with a great business model. And um, I went from being with a company who was just looking to get their money out to, to joining a company who was putting a ton of money in. And there is a world of difference between those two experiences. Um, but I will also say that while I was at Globix, I went through a lot of suitors who were trying to buy us. And I was I sat in on a lot of those conversations. And it's a really interesting process to be part of when your company is looking to be bought. It's painful, um, but it's also exciting. And, uh, and so that was an interesting, an interesting experience. So that's, that's one of the topics I wanted to keep pressing you on because okay. of the nature of what's going on in the industry today, right? It seems almost yeah. every week or two weeks, there's some major announcement about a merger or an acquisition occurring in the data center space and the telecommunications space, not too dissimilar from what was going on in the 90s, late 90s and early 2000s, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Specifically, is there any advice, you know, you spoke to this early, the, the, um, as you've grown in the industry, how much you value experience for those who are currently working for companies that are kind of sitting in the crosshairs of that M&A activity going on? What what advice would you give them? So I really love this question because I have advice. <laughs> um, my advice is, um, and of course this is going to vary depending on a person's position, but you know, in, in life. But at the end of the day, if you can afford to wait it out, wait to see what's going to happen. Um, when I was part of when QTS acquired Globex, I saw a lot of really talented people who loved the company leave out of fear or leave out of uncertainty. They didn't know what was going to happen and they didn't like that there were changes happening. And so they jumped ship and went somewhere else that 
that felt newer and more stable and interesting. And that's fine. It's a perfectly adequate, it's, it's, it's a fine decision, but I think they really missed out because if you can, if you're willing to be a little bit patient to see how some of the little, the tumultuous times work themselves out, it can be incredibly profitable and incredibly rewarding from a career perspective. So that would really be my, try not to let, you know, discomfort and fear um, rule your actions. And I also would say the more chaotic it is, the more opportunity there is for you to shine and, and move up in a company. Yeah, that is, that is great advice. Um, so straight up, one of my frustrations, uh, having seen and seeing so much M&A activity occur, is when I'm speaking to executives, even, even at higher levels, and I'm asking on behalf of my clients, you know, what's going on right. with the company? <laughs> what's the future of this company? And I hear, you know, people straight up telling me to my face, we're stable, we've got a lot of money behind us, uh, we're going to, you know, nothing is going to be changing. And then a week later, I see an entire company, you know, go through massive change, lots of turnover, relationships ending due to an, a number of reasons for a lot of the reasons that you actually just said. So like the key relationships that you may have that drove a deal supported the deal from a person to person perspective within a company are gone, right? You know, it, it's been frustrating for me and my clients to say the least watching that occur in the industry. Do I have a question there? Or am I just ranting? <laughs> what would I tell? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I will comment on what you just said, which yes. is I 100% agree with you. You know, outside of you know, the fact that a lot of public companies can't talk about what's going on, I genuinely believe that that is a failure on the part of management. And what I mean by that is, I am not afraid to be honest with people about what's going on in my company um, or in my industry or because at the end of the day, I have incredible confidence in the decisions we're making are in the best interests of everyone around us. But I definitely believe everything that I do um, centers around this principle that in the in the absence of information, people are going to go negative. <laughs> so, and and it and the opposite of absence of information is telling them things that are not true. So, I certainly don't mislead people about what's going on. And but I, but I'm not going to not tell people when stuff is going on either, as, as the best of my ability. Um, so, I, and I don't know if that's being too vague. But at the end of the day, I think that there is nothing wrong. I think you have to trust that people are mature enough to appreciate that change is going to happen and things are going, you know, that change is going to happen, but that you're going to take the steps you need to, to, to take care of your customers and others. But that same transparency has to apply to your employees. If you're not talking your employees through these things, then they're going to leave. And a lot of this is about respect. I, I've been at a lot of companies where people, where the leadership doesn't have enough faith in the people who are actually running the business. And I think it's a real shame. So re related to that, you recently were involved with the Carpathia acquisition that QTS did. How long? That was two years ago, three right. years ago? Two years ago. Yeah, just a little over two years. Mm -hmm. um, which is, as an outsider looking in, I I was impressed with how, you know, for what it's worth, I was impressed with how oh, QTS <laughs> handled that. Because I looked, I, I knew a handful of the Carpathia individuals that I thought were extremely talented, extremely bright, um, saw the holistic picture of the technological landscape and were trying to solve big problems for customers leveraging all the different tools that they had available to them. Um, and what I saw was QTS actually embrace those people and empower those people um, and help bring some of that culture into what was for the most part, a, a very much a power and space business, right? That also did some hosting, but embraced the holistic nature of 
uh, trying to solve bigger problems for customers. So what, what do you think QTS did in that process that, um, you know, what, what was the approach going into it? Sure. First of all, thank you. I'm really happy to hear that, that you know, that was apparent from the outside. Um, I will say that QTS um, took a total, a wholly different approach than many of the other acquisitions I've, I've been part of or I've watched. And that was very much this take that, you know, hey, we've acquired, we have, we are acquiring a diamond. We're going to approach it as such. And we are going to ask a lot of questions and do a lot of listening before we make a bunch of decisions. Um, some would argue we might have done even more of that than we should have <laughs> because you can err on both sides. But at the end of the day, I think if you're going to err on one side, the side we erred on was the right one. Because I believe that most people felt respected and heard when they, you know, being acquired is, it can be a very scary experience, right? Who, you know, people are going to come in and beat their chest and tell me they're my boss. Um, they're going to change everything that I love about this place. So I think, I think, some of that um, charge was removed with the the whole listening tour that everybody went on, um, and then we try we really did try to lead with the principle that we were going to take the best of you know the best of the, we were going to take the best principles. Um, it didn't matter where it came from, and so that's what we did. So I've got I've got some other questions about you specifically working as a female in what is primarily a, a male dominated industry, not not because of the nature of the work, but just by the sheer volume right. of, of men in the space. <laughs> That's um, true. And, you know, I've, I've been in sales, obviously, my, my whole career. And I used to think that it was unique to, to high tech, but I've just seen in so many cases, men acting in absolute obscene ways around other women in, in our space, whether it's at sales events or networking events or even in meetings where I just kind of like, I want to reach over the table and just hit someone with a baseball <laughs> bat or just acting like a douchebag at the end of the day. Yeah. Right. How has that affected you throughout your career and how, you know, yeah. if I, I don't have, you know, nearly the, the patience that I, I could, any of, any of the women working in the industry today have, because I would have literally probably punched <laughs> half a dozen, if not more people in the face if I was in your shoes. Yeah. Well, so let me see. I think, so it's very interesting. Um, you're 100% right. I am, I'd say 90% of the time, I am the only woman um, in a room, um, particularly when we're with executive leader in executive leadership meetings. Um, now, I will say that my experience with those sort of inappropriate behavior, that has changed over the years. When I was younger, I think there was a lot more of it. Um, and I, and it may be because I, I'm really not a hundred percent sure why, but I can, I can only speak for my part, which is, I don't think I knew any better what I should put up with. As I have gotten older, more confident, more experienced, I honestly never, I almost never see it anymore, um, which is a relief. Now, a lot of that has to do with the company that I work for. I thankfully work, um, in a company that is uh, very based on good values and things like that. So we don't have a lot of drinking here. You know, th those types of things sometimes exacerbate um, those experiences. And I think I'm just very lucky in the company I'm, I'm in. But I will also tell you that even if I went to work for the most testosterone-filled company in the world today, I wouldn't put up with it. And I think that um, and I'm not trying to say that any woman that faces this is is asking for it, not at all. But I think in terms of um, making it either easy or hard for it to um, happen to you is um, what you're willing to tolerate and what you're not. And I, I, there, I'm not willing to tolerate 
very much. <laughs> and I think that anyone I, I work with or I encounter knows that. And But again, that is entirely about experience and entirely about confidence. And it's not something that I, I had in my 20s at all. And so um, so that can be challenging. I also think, and I this, this, obvious, this may seem like a really obvious statement, but what a company culture looks like is it's reading the top of the org chart, right? If the top of your company acts in respectable and honorable ways, then that is going to, it's going to trickle down and people are going to start modeling their behavior off of that. But if you work at a company where that kind of stuff is permissible, it will not only survive, it will thrive. I don't know if that wholly answers your question, but that's a little color on my experience. No, that's, that's good commentary. Um, I, I used to always speak to following the money figure out who owns the business, figure <laughs> yes. out what the values of those people are, and then you'll be able to understand where where that those individuals are going to be taking the business. Um, yeah, and so that's great. That's, that's great. absolutely true. That's great advice for anyone looking to join any company, male or female, is to look mm-hmm. at the values of the people that are running the organization and not just, not just looking to their About Us page and what their corporate values are, but <laughs> looking to yeah. what those people do in their free time, right? Absolutely. Um, the character of those involved. So w- what are some other advice that you would give? You know, I, I see more as we do our trainings across the country, we see more and more women actually attending the trainings, which is a phenomenal thing. But what, what other advice would you give um, some newcomers into this space, you know, be it women or, or just people in general? So the interesting thing is that while I'm the only woman who sits in a lot of the executive meetings, um, I'm actually surrounded by women. So I think what you find, and so I think, so a couple of things. First of all, there are a ton of female salespeople in my organization. I don't know if you've had the experience of seeing that across the country. Actually, I'm interested. Do you see a lot of women sales executives in this space? I see more and more coming into the space for sure. Yeah. Great. Because I would say that what you sell is, you know, I think sales is the kind of, um, I just think it's accessible to anybody, right? You don't have to have gone to some kind of computer science or tech school in order to be able to sell what I sell. Um, it is hard to get into now if you don't, you know, like any job, right? We are looking to hire people who have experience. So that means you have to have done this somewhere else, that kind of thing. But um, so I think you see a lot of women in sales. You see a lot of women in um, some of our like experience manager positions, um, things like that. So there, there are a lot of women at the company. What you don't see a lot of are the jobs that do require technical degrees and um, that are that are more operational in focus. And again, I think that has nothing to do with aptitude um, and nothing to do with, you know, not wanting to hire women, but has everything to do with uh, what women are encouraged to um, pursue when they're younger from an educational standpoint and, and other, et cetera. So um, I just read this whole article about, um, you know, I think it's called Girls Who Code or something. Um, and it's about a woman who's who started these camps for for young girls, like 8, 12 or something like that, where they are teaching them to code because they're great skills to have, but it's also that is where the demand is going to be at some period of time. And it creates this sense of confidence and, um, you know, that that isn't being encouraged at the actual education, you know, in school systems today. And it's, you know, for whatever reason, this, this could be a whole sociological conversation, but I, I do think it starts when you're really young. And so I don't see a lot of those positions, a couple here and there, um, but I am seeing more and more in, in these areas that seem very, very accessible. Even legal and finance, we've, you know, obviously we've got a ton of there too. Yeah, you've got, uh, who's it, Shirley Goza, right? 
Oh my goodness. The greatest lawyer in the entire universe works for our company. Yeah. She's been <laughs> she there for is, a while now, almost a decade. Has. Yeah. yeah, no, she's yeah, she's been there since the start and uh and she's fantastic, yeah. yeah. I remember back in the day I got to know Shirley fairly well because I I bugged the crap out of her um fairly frequently because <laughs> I it, it was basically around, "Hey, I don't want to be bugging you." Um, right, so tell me what are the things that I can and can't tell customers that we can and can't change within our our MSAs yeah. and SLAs and our contract terms so that we can have this conversation once and I only come to you when I absolutely have to, right? Which she mm-hmm. she appreciated greatly. And so she invested the time yeah. to walk me through it all. Awesome. Taking a step back though, I'm just thinking to myself, if if I am, let's say I'm a 26-year-old, 27-year-old, I'm a female. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a man in the room who is being a an asshole. What is a tactful way that I can get the point across to this individual that they're being an asshole and that they should change their tack <laughs> and be respectful without making a total scene out of that situation? Right. Well, it's hard to talk in, you know, in total, um, you know, in, in broad terms, because, you know, there, there are so many different iterations of what that could look like. Um, but I think just making it, you know, uh, not laughing along, right? Because um, I think sometimes, especially like people pleasing women, like I certainly was in my 20s, you'll sort of laugh in an effort to make it clear that, you know, it isn't hurting your feelings, but laughing is encouraging. Um, uh, changing the subject. And then if it really gets too uncomfortable, I'd say find an excuse to walk out the door. Um, because I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it means you're standing up for yourself and then, you know, maybe talking to somebody about it. Um, but I, I'll, here's another thing I'll say, and I hope that this doesn't come across the wrong way. But um, I sometimes think that there is a way of being in the world that um, is more helpful than another. And what I mean by that is I have seen many a day um, – people, but mostly women, um, sometimes use coquettish behavior in meetings or um, with clients or with their peers. And look, anyone can be however they want. It doesn't, it doesn't make any kind of behavior against them acceptable. Um, but what that does is it denigrates your own worth in, in terms of, of what you have to contribute to um, whatever conversation you're having, right? So if, you're, if, if a lot of this is about being cute and adorable and, and, and you present that as your primary value to the conversation, then that's what's going to be valued, not the content of what you have to say. And so, again, I don't want this to sound like I'm saying you blame the victim or anything like that, but if you can catch yourself you know, I'd say this to a young woman, like if you can catch yourself doing that a little bit in an effort to get ahead or make people like you, 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 you should start training yourself not to do that. It's more great advice. Um, well, let's, let's steer this off in a different direction. How, how have you seen the industry in general and clients? Because, you know, you've been client facing and either directly yeah. working with customers or managing teams of those that work with customers. Um, both inside and outside direct direct teams for almost your entire career. Um, how have you seen the asks of customers in our industry evolve over you know the last decade and, and fifteen years that you've been you've been at it? That's a really good question. So it's funny on the face of things. I don't I don't actually think the whole conversation has changed a lot or the structure of the conversation. So as I mentioned when I first started, there was a lot of. Pre, there was a lot of education at the front, right? You know, 
help me understand. Now, I should also caveat this by saying that I was working with the West Coast. And as I said before, my clients on the West Coast at that time really loved having long conversations with me. When I finally started working with East Coasters, that was not my experience. (laughs) They'd be like, this is what I want. Tell me the price and how quickly you can get it to me. So some of this was a little bit geographic. But but I do think there was a little bit more of an educational bent at the time just because everything was so new. Then as time went on, I mean, I think what I mean by the conversation structure hasn't changed a lot is that oftentimes people come to you saying, I know what I want. And half the time they don't really, they think they do. Um, And there's always a little bit of a resistance around maybe trusting a salesperson with what they do and don't know. So I think that tension has always been there. And and that's the skill of being a salesperson is being able to um, engender their trust, get them to talk and open up and be willing to trust you with recommendations. In terms of the the technology and such, I think what ends up shifting um, is what the flavor of the day is, right? So, um, you know, for you know, first there was a lot of co-location conversations and power and space and bandwidth. That was, you know, that was the flavor. Um, then you had, you know, conversations about managed hosting. Then after a big, like after Sandy happened, right, Hurricane Sandy, a lot of DR conversations, a lot of I'm not going to put my stuff in that building because I can see the water. I mean, things that you never heard before, all of a sudden were popping up in all sorts of conversations. So a lot of this just takes on like, you know, the the flavor of the day. Um, you know, today, everybody has questions and concerns about public cloud, private cloud, um, you know, but when I, when I boil it all down, these are the same conversations I've always been having. They're just about something a little bit different and still trying to solve the same problems. Yeah. So it's, it's new words injected <laughs> in, into the same conversation. Yeah. And if you want to take it a step further, the people I'm talking to have the same concerns, right? Hey, I'm an IT director. I don't want to get fired. I want to make sure I hit my budget. I want to get my promotion. I want to, you know, I want to help my company. Like all of that has stayed exactly the same. Related to the the terminology in the industry, there I think it was Larry Olson that said not not too long ago when he was asked when the word cloud, right, started to become a real hot hot button. He was asked if if cloud computing was going to drastically change the way that Oracle does business, and his response was basically making the guy feel like an idiot, um, which was kind of not not the brightest of questions to ask. But he's like, "Look, th- there's no other industry more fashion driven than women's fashion, other than IT. And so, mm-hmm. what are we going to do as a company? We may draw some bubbles and you know some cloud bubbles around our marketing collateral, but we already deliver cloud services. We always have delivered cloud services." Yeah. So it's not going to be very different. What is the new, what's the new, new thing these days that, that you hear customers mm. talking about or your, your sales reps asking you about? Um, the new, new thing. I mean, I feel like anything I say isn't going to sound all that new. Um, okay, so one is containers. Right, people talking about containers a lot about their around their apps. Um, that isn't something we sell, <laughs> just to be clear. But but it's one of those buzzwords that enters into the conversation, and you kind of have to be able to understand what they're talking about in order to be able to apply it to what what they're really asking you for. Um, you know, hyperconverge. Um, you know, uh, like I said, the the really big driver right now is is all about cloud access to. And when I say cloud, I mean public cloud, AWS, Azure, um, SoftLayer, et cetera. Like. How do I access it? What do I put in there? What do I keep for myself? Um, how do I convince my boss everything doesn't have to go to the cloud? Things like that. 
So with the the hundreds of salespeople that you've directly managed and indirectly managed in your career, mm-hmm. I'm curious what what are kind of some of the archetypes of those who you think have been extremely successful in the roles that they've been in? With with an understanding, we may even want to kind of segment that to you know those who are direct hunters and those mm-hmm. that are kind of inside sales account managers which yeah. are two you know almost different personality types in my my perspective but I'm curious what yeah what what do you see Well I mean it's funny you should say that so there definitely are different types but I also think that um uh that you can see overlapping skills in both which would make either role a success It's actually funny you should say that um you know cuz I I can think of there, in my mind, there's two types of salespeople who are successful who are very different from one another, and they probably do fall into the archetypes of hunter and farmer. Um, but, you know, the, the first one is, you know, the um, the networker, the aggressive, you know, nothing will stop me from getting to my goal. You know, the person who's who's out there hustling all the time. And when I say this stuff, I'm hesitating because I want to say like work ethic is important in any role. doesn't matter. But from a personality type, like the person who's out there making connections and um, who is unafraid of picking up a phone, having difficult conversations and is relentless. So that's, you know, sort of the typical uh, role. But I will also add that it's just important to me that nobody be obnoxious when they're doing these things. you can be those you can you can still have some of those qualities but then also like break glass and be irresponsible and then you won't be successful so I'm sort of assuming everyone understands what i mean the other type which i think by the way there's lots of people of both of these qualities but is sort of at the other end of the spectrum is the person who is um sort of very diligent about how they approach their work. So they may say to themselves, I'm going to make 40 calls today and I am going to go through my list of things that I need to do and I'm going to make sure that I accomplish all of these things by the end of the week. Again, these are not mutually exclusive, but one is a little bit more, um, uh, I'm struggling for the word, but one of them is a little bit more frenetic in terms of being out there and, and interacting and that takes the precedence while the other one's a little bit more methodical. And I do think sometimes you find that, you know, the person who's like this, you know, this aggressive type who's out there making stuff happen may not be great about dotting their I's and crossing their T's. And that's okay. I think it's important for a manager to really understand what their people's strengths are and not harass them too much about things that aren't going to matter that much in the end. Or, you know, they can make up for them themselves, that type of thing. So hopefully that answered your question. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, I think, good insight for people to hear. And it's, I've learned over the years, for sure, that there's, there's different personality types that can, that can succeed. And you don't have to just be one, one type of person. And I'll give you an example. So one of my good friends is hands down one of the, one of the best salesmen I've ever met. He's personable. He's, he just attracts all the attention in the room in a good way. He just exudes positive energy. And people want to get to know him and talk to him. And he came to a point in his life about a year and a half, two years ago, where he realized just how much of a bull he was and like an attention whore <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and he went back to his old bosses and he asked him, he said, look, why would you let me get away with a lot of this behavior? And mm-hmm. the response was because you, you were successful, because you were constantly driving revenue into the business. And our job was to simply take care of all the little things that you may have not taken care of, right? 
So mm-hmm. we didn't hound you to make sure that your CRM information was absolutely <laughs> correct because we exactly. wanted you out selling. We wanted you in front of people um, having conversations. And so we just took care of that stuff on the back end for you. And I've, I have found that those in my career, because, you know, as you, as you know, having worked with me, I'm not yes. too dissimilar of a personality type. But my favorite bosses in my career have always been those who kind of, they saw it as their job to empower me to do what I was most passionate and successful doing. And that they, their role was to, not to enable uh, ineptitude, but to mm-hmm. enable me to spend the vast majority of my time doing what I was, I was the best at doing, which was interfacing with human beings and right. getting them to, to listen and buy into whatever it was I was talking about. I mean, it's interesting you should say that because I do think, I mean, you could, we could talk for an hour on this subject, but this idea of what makes a good manager, this, what you just identified are the, are the marks of not just a good manager, but a mature and experienced one. Um, it's challenging. You know, I've been at companies where, you know, it was, they were very young companies and people were promoted very quickly because you were a great seller. You became a manager and um, managing is a completely different career. It's a completely different set of skills. And um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking you're the boss when you're the manager. You're not the boss. You're people are the boss. You are there to support them. But it, it doesn't always translate. You know, every organization doesn't really take that approach and it's, it can be very challenging. So you've been yeah, very sure. lucky. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, that's, I think most salespeople have heard the story about the super successful sales rep who thinks that they're going to move up the ranks and make more money uh, by becoming a manager only to realize that they were never built to be a manager and fail at being a manager and wish that they could just go back to selling, but they've already started down that path. Well, I will tell you though, interesting, I mean, just a side story about myself. Um, I went from management back to individual contributor, back to management again. I think, you know, I don't think, I think if you are a person who finds yourself in that position, you should very quickly have a conversation with somebody about going back to the thing you're great at and do not have shame about it. There, this is not really, I mean, even though org charts are built that way to look like you're moving up, um, honestly, the best salespeople in the world are making way more money than their managers. And there should be no shame. And like, if you are much better at selling, then sell and, and embrace it and, and take you know, laugh all the way to the bank. That's that's a key point for people to understand because I think in a lot of young executives' minds, they feel like that if they the only way for them to become a CEO, for example, is to manage and to move up that chain of command. And it, it may be that being a CEO is not really not really the best place for you. You know, being a, maybe yeah. an evangelist, a chief evangelist, or a president mm-hmm. role with an organization might be better suited. I've definitely Absolutely. learned that over the years. Is that I. You know, I'm not a big fan of managing, <laughs> and that in fact <laughs> I find managing to be far harder and more complicated uh, than than selling and developing client relationships and and honing in on those relationships and maximizing the the win win potential within those relationships. And I, I just, just don't think they're completely different skills. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> so I'm curious, what what then makes a really good manager? I think I think. As in sales, you have to be a really good listener. You have to watch really well, and you have to be able to. Um, you, your job is to guide people and help them understand how to do things differently or what to be doing next. Um, I think you might have been here when this was a big saying, or maybe it was after you left. But it's like, please don't tell me I need to hit the ball. Show me how. Right? Being a manager is not saying you need to sell more. 
Um, that is not helpful to anybody. That is not going to help somebody sell more. What you need to do is you have to have the patience to sit down with someone and, and, and be able to observe and then guide them to do the things that are going to be helpful. And you know, my best managers are rolling up their shirt sleeves and, and showing by demonstration. They're doing it they're t- joined at the hip. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're tackling these problems together. And then they let them go do it and see how they can do. So, um, you know, I, I, those skills. And then being um, firm, uh, you know, I think, and when I say firm, I don't mean like, you know, angry or anything like that, but being really clear about what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior. Um, you know, when you, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had over the last five years where I've had to say to someone, are you sure this is the job you should be doing? And it's okay if you say, no, I will help you find another job. <laughs> but we need to get very clear about what you should be doing with your life. Because if you're not being successful in this role, there's only a couple ways this can go. But you need to be comfortable having that kind of a frank conversation with somebody. Um, so... Yeah, I, for me anyway, that's my approach, right? I like to treat people like they're adults. I like to have um, fact-based conversations with them. And while I consider myself to be, you know, a passionate person and I, I love what I do and, and I, I have emotion behind it, I don't feel like emotion drives my conversations with people. Um, I really feel like facts and um, and data really inform my conversations with my with my reps and my directors. So digging back into your emotional and experiential bank of experiences, what what are some of those moments in your career that you can close your eyes and vividly remember where you were and what the conversation was that kind of helped shape who you are today? Mm, That's such a good question. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, Well, while you were saying that one flashed in my head, so I guess I should just start with that one. Um, It was a dramatic um, time. I was was at a company that was going through a lot of internal upheaval and and reorg type stuff. And um, I had a boss at the time who had just given me a review telling me I was doing everything amazing, everything was great. And on the heels of that, he then tells me that... um, he's basically promoting all the other men in my department and I'm going to be reporting to one of them. <laughs> and I will say this was a moment where I had a lot of emotion, right? I just, and, and it wasn't so much that, you know, Hey, this is unfair. Everyone, you know, I feel like I'm being demoted, but it was more like there was no logic behind why I was going to be working for somebody in operations. They were basically subsuming sales and putting them under operations. And I just, it made no sense to me. I got really angry. And so this was one of those times where I really exercised the following principle, which is I know how much value I provide to an organization. And the worst thing that can happen to an organization is if I decide to leave them. Therefore, you know, that is what I take to the top person and let them decide. So I, I talked to both the CEO and then eventually um, a gentleman on, who's, the, who's on the board of directors. And I, I explained calmly that I could not disagree more, more wholeheartedly with this move, um, that it signaled to me that this wasn't a place that I wanted to work, and that if they agreed with the move, that I was going to respectfully move on. Um, but if they agreed with my assessment, um, that I would love to ha- continue to have conversations with them. And and the reason, and I think it's obvious why this was so pivotal for me. You know, up until that time, a lot of times I felt like when I 
there's always this element when you interview for jobs or you're working for people that somehow they have more control than you do. But this was for me at that moment where I was like, no, 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 this is, this is my career to manage. And I know how valuable I am. And uh, sure enough, they, uh, they just, they, they sided with me and, um, and I continued to work there and um, a lot of other things happened. But basically that, that was a pivotal moment for me. So what, what, what other lessons have you learned that have been kind of key to and core to, to how you operate in the workplace today? So a really fun, very simple one that I think almost everybody probably operates from, but I, I like to keep it at the front, is there are always two sides to every story. So I am in a position where people come to me with their outrage, <laughs> whether it's an employee, whether it's a client, um, and, you know, it, it, you know, you learn this very quickly, but um, just because someone tells you something with a tremendous amount of um, uh, conviction does not mean that what they're telling you is what was experienced by everyone involved. So that that's one that I practice probably daily. Uh, it took that, me, for what it's worth, it took me having kids to really understand <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> My child does not yet speak, so I'm looking forward to experiencing that at the kid level. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you learned it from the adult kid level, right? That's true. We'll it's see. that a lot of adults in this world still have a, uh, an emotional uh, intelligence level. I do part. feel like a mom a lot. I do. It's true. When I'm at work, I mean. Um, other things that I've, I've used here, you know, I will skip ahead to something you might be asking me later, but... Um, Interestingly enough, so I, I did hear, actually, let me just jump back for a quick second. So I remember somebody once said to me a long time ago, you'll learn more from your, um, from your bad bosses than you will from your good, which I think is sort of an interesting commentary. But I only say that because um, I worked for someone once who um, we didn't get along very well, but he gave me some of the m- most interesting observation slash advice that I hold dear to my heart now, which is that the most important quality you can have um, in this industry, but I think it's true for really any business, is um, being adaptive, right? There's so much change that you really can't afford to be stuck in any one paradigm or set of routines or um, what have you, that being adaptable to your environment is the most important quality you can have. And I I think he was 100% right about that. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, Todd Smith and I, on the very last podcast, had that very conversation of, of how powerful status quo can be within organizations, right? Um, and people think just because it's working today that it, it will always perpetuate and exist. And that's not just true from a operational and how a company operates perspective, but it's true from a, a human perspective, you know, being open to... I was just going to say that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's human beings. We want to put things in in boxes and we want them to never change. And it's 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 the opposite of what's actually happening. So what are, what are some other moments that you've had maybe in your early career where you kind of took a step back and said, holy crap, that was, that was powerful. That was, that was impactful. Honestly, moving. So one of the most interesting things for me, and, and what I was going to say is none of this happened in the moment. There's a lot of like looking back and, and, you know, um, hindsight has 2020 vision, but you know, I, so when I worked for the federal government, at the time, I was young and I was making a lot of money and I had a master's degree from an Ivy League college. You know, I was doing things that were, were interesting, but I am telling you right now that I did not 
feel like I had any value to add in these jobs and these roles. And a lot of it had to do with being young, but it also had to do with the type of work I was doing. When I finally found myself in a, in a sales role, a role that had nothing but metrics associated with it, and a role that thankfully I happened to, um, I happened to be pretty good at, it changed my entire way of being and my entire outlook on work and, and my entire sense of confidence. You could say I was very lucky that I sort of found my calling, and I, I feel like I am very lucky. Um, but, but to me, the real key for anybody, regardless of what their calling may be, is understanding where you are adding value, understanding what contri- contribution you're making that either isn't being made by others around you or you're, is it being made in a unique way that's beneficial. Um, because that made all the difference in everything. And I mean, I feel like, you know, I look around at a lot of the people I know that I went to school with in college and such, and I feel like one of the very few who adores what I do. I love my job. I do not dread going to work. I love the people I work with. I love what I do every day. Um, and I feel very blessed to be able to say that. But I wholeheartedly believe it has to do with the fact that, you know, I have tremendous confidence in, in the fact that there is purpose behind what I'm doing. What is that purpose behind what you're doing, Sheila? <laughs> the purpose is, so my purpose is I'm, I'm helping others. Um, I'm, I'm creating, I'm serving my clients by providing them with great solutions to help their business runs. I'm helping my company by earning them revenue and making the operation more efficient. I mean, honest to God, I could, I could give you a whole laundry list of, of the contributions that I make, but I feel appreciated and I feel um, like, like they're real. And, and that, you know, I think having purpose in the world cannot be underestimated. I, I think those who know me know that I'm quite, quite purpose driven with, with all things that I do. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. So one question that I meant to ask you actually, when we sat down and had lunch in Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, a month or two ago, but you, you spent two years as effectively my boss's boss, right? When I was in, in QTS on the West coast, what, what did you see? in what was going on on the West Coast and specifically in the behavior that you saw from me. And I'd, I'd love for you to just be as raw and candid as possible because it's, you know, I, yeah, I'm here sure. for to be interviewed just as much as to interview you. <laughs> so, okay. So the question is, um, what was my perception of sort of what you were bringing to the table and how you were operating at the time Correct. in our office in California? Okay. Yep. Well, first and foremost, Everybody knew that you were a producer from the moment you got there. So, you know, the truth is when you're a producer, as you referenced earlier, um, there's a little bit more leeway given to people who can produce, um, even if, you know, they're not, you know, towing the line and such. Um, so, you know, there was, there was respect there because you could, you could make things happen. And that, you know, that's really what everybody wants out of their salespeople. And I, um, I appreciated that leeway, by the way. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I will tell you one funny story um, that, that a little bit colored in a particular way, my view of, of you. And, and the funny thing is when, I can't remember when I first learned that you weren't from California, but at this time when this story happened, I, I thought this epitomized the Californians um, and that you were the epitome of them. So it was very funny when I found out you actually weren't from California. Um, so I remember going to the California office and 
um, you were there and a lot of the other sort of newish people in the office were there and our CEO had arrived um, for something. I can't remember if we were what kind of meeting we were having or if he, he was just coming to do a drive-by. And I remember watching you telling him what he was doing wrong with his business. <laughs> And um, and <laughs> and I thought, wow, it takes a lot of chutzpah, you know. Like, you know, this guy's been pretty successful at running his business. I think maybe he's a little out of line in doing that. Now, I do appreciate where it was coming from. I think that you know, not only you know, were you trying to make it clear what needed to be sort of improved upon, um, but I'm also going to come. I think you were a little on the young side too. So there was this passion behind. How you felt like you knew the answer to things. Um, so. I, you know that was that was my only funny story about you know my my view. I I sort of thought you had you thought you had all the answers. Um, I that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think what, most of us did at that age. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what what it was that I told him? Oh, I wish I did. I I really don't. I don't. I, I imagine that some of it was holistic and some of it was also because I got this a lot. Well, in California, we're different and we need blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so there was a lot of that coming out of the office at the time. Yeah, there definitely was. But what I actually do remember that moment because I thought this is a perfect opportunity for me to actually talk to this man and connect with him. <laughs> and here, I, I kid you not, this is exactly what I said. I said, look, the people out here in this office have no idea who you are. And I talked to other people in other offices across the country because I was putting deals and facilities all over, sure. the, all over the country. And I said, no one has a relationship with you. You're the CEO of this company. You have such passion and vision for this business. You know, we've all saw Chad cry in front of the entire company multiple times during the all team sessions, right? Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Clearly you love this business. Clearly you're driven by purpose and it would be great for you to just sit down and have a cup of coffee or, or make a phone call to the people in your business. So you can learn from them on the ground floor, what was, what's going on in the business. Um, and that's, that was the piece of advice that I, I gave did. him. But to your point, I, I honest to God, I'm not sure if he even, if he was just so offended by the fact that, that who the hell is this kid trying to tell me how to run the business or what, but um, you know, I, I don't. Never... I don't know if he was or not, but I will tell you something that maybe it made an impression, or maybe it just happens to be good general universal advice. But he really does try hard to meet as many QTSers as he can, even though we're now an 800 person company. I mean, it, it is. It is. You know, he tries very, very hard to. Um, and I will also tell you that I think, you know, again, maybe it lodged in his brain somewhere, but um, at that time, he was not as directly in control of the company as he is today. And he learned some lessons by letting other people run his company, the, the real operations of the company. And he, he's not going to let that happen again because some things got away from him for a couple of years there. And um, he was very honest about it with a bunch of us. And he just said, yeah, I'm not, that's not happening again. I'm going to be directly involved in everything. So maybe you made an impression. <laughs> so going back to, well, I appreciate that feedback. Um, sure. I'd love to maybe uh, over some drinks another time, get some more <laughs> feedback from you. <laughs> maybe you're more comfortable telling me directly and not on a podcast. But, um, so with, with all the M&A activity that is occurring, in the industry today, like, what are your thoughts when you see digital and Dupont, and you see Via West and Peak Ten, and you mm -hmm. just see all this activity going on? Like, what what's your gut reaction as to how that's going to affect our space and our industry over the coming years? 
my honest to God reaction is, oh, more of the same, right? Like I've been around long enough that I just see these cycles come um, with some kind of regularity. So it doesn't freak me out. It doesn't have a giant impact on me. I will tell you that in the um, when they're happening immediately, right? So DuPont and, and digital, for example, um, my short-term thinking is great opportunity for us because those kinds of integrations are challenging and there is pain and um, there's always a little bit of fallout. And so great, maybe we can take advantage of that, right? Um, that's my short-term thinking. My long-term thinking is that um, the fewer players we're still, you know, it maybe means it, you know, I don't know if it's easier for us. I mean, they, they, they certainly will have some advantages um, in the long run. Um, but it, it doesn't it doesn't preoccupy my thoughts a whole lot. I, um, I just feel like a lot of this stuff is very cyclical. And as long as I stay pretty comfortable with the fact that we are not planning on being acquired, and I really feel comfortable about that, <laughs> then um, I, I'm not too, I'm not too, too worried. It's interesting. And I think some of them will be successful and some of them will have a really, really hard time. I mean, there's still some that even like look at Verizon Terramark, which happened how many years ago? There, there's still such tremendous fallout from that, right? They're, they're really, really hard to do. And so, you know, I guess I'm just an optimist, but I, I hope that we will just be beneficiaries long run. I think the the reality is such that when any one bureaucracy buys another bureaucracy, yeah. good things generally don't come out of that, right? No, no. <laughs> it's, it's what's the what frustrates me most, and I'm, I'm going to go on a rant here for just a short little bit, but okay. uh, I'm I'm sure you feel the same. What what frustrates me most is when these acquisitions occur or mergers occur, the messaging that comes out is primarily focused on how this is great to shareholder value. But it leaves out of the equation the most important piece, which is how the hell is this going to affect your customers, right? Yeah. How are the customers going to be affected by this? And what's the strategy to go about making sure that whatever comes out of this is going to be in their best interest? And it's not just marketing BS fluffery PR, but it's actual tangible realities. And that's where well, I, I wish these companies just focus more time and energy and effort on putting that plan in place not just how the bean counters are going to be able to exponentially, you know, increase yeah. their returns on the business. Well, I think it goes back to something you said earlier, just about like, you know, follow the money and look at what matters to the people at the head. And even in acquisitions and mergers, I mean, I can tell you that when we, when we look at companies and we look at opportunities, the culture piece is a huge factor. We are not going to find ourselves marrying somebody who doesn't share a lot of the things that we share. And I, I mean, look, I, I can't speak for other companies and, and such, but if you are with a company that cares a lot about their customers and the value they're adding in long-term growth and organic and all the rest of it, um, you would hope that they would, you know, that their behavior would be a little bit different. A lot of these companies that do some of these, you know, I'm not talking about the most recent ones, but, you know, when you have a company that's owned by a venture capital firm, that's a whole different story than when you have a company that's owned by people who've been spending the last 20 years building it from the ground up. Yeah, that's very true. So, I mean, QTS, though, at, at one point was owned by private equity, right? So General Atlantic. Not I, owned. I came Not owned. Uh, right. Just to be clear, right? So th there was a funded, certainly, a nice big portion funded, but the, um, the majority stake has always been owned by Chad, or at least at the time was always owned by Chad. 
That's true. In fact, I, I uncovered that by asking a lot of questions and, and getting certain people <laughs> lubricated. Um, and when I found out that Chad, Chad was truly the, still the owner of the business and had a say over hiring and firing, my perspective of how things were going to play out in that company completely shifted because it, mm. it became very clear. You know, you follow the power structure, who has the, the control of right. the business and you'll understand how it's really going to operate. And that was yeah. a very telling uh, sign for what was going to happen in the future of that business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that we're public, everybody can read <laughs> what's going on. No lubrication required. <laughs> exactly. Um, so some concluding questions I have for you. Okay, great. Um, let's say you're, you're, you've got a daughter now, right? I do. I have an 18-month-old daughter. When your 18-month-old daughter is graduating from college and she tells you, mom, I want to go work in the industry that you spent all your time in. What is your advice going to be to her? Mm. Well, you would hear me reiterate a lot of what I've said over the last hour or so, Um, just around, you know, finding what she's really good at and what she, where she feels like she's contributing, that that would all be very important. And also the stuff that we talked about around the type of company you go to work for, those things are going to impact the, your quality of life on a daily basis. So you want to make sure you like the people you work with and you like what's going on there and that you can look, you can look people in the eye and say, you know, I'm proud of what I do and how we do it. What is a common misconception that do you think people have about our industry or the, the internet at large? So I guess I have a couple. Um, so the first one, you know, with my with the civilians in my life, I would say the the common misperception is that I somehow um, that I know how to fix computers, <laughs> and that my industry is boring, right? Like that I that I do some weird technical thing. I don't do anything technical. My very first job, when we had that training I was telling you about, where the, the head of sales was doing the training, he said. Uh, it was really interesting because we were all brand new off the street. We'd never done anything like this before. And he said, when you go to a cocktail party, what do you tell people you do? And we all said, oh, we tell them we work for a technology company. He goes, I want you to tell them that you're in sales because you should be proud you're in sales. It's the greatest profession in the world. And the truth is, that's how I lead now. I am in sales. I love being in sales. So um, so for Ms. What was I saying? Oh, so my bottom line is that like, it doesn't matter if it feels like, you know, my industry might be, you know, what kind of technology, you know, how complex my industry might be. I'm actually in sales. So (laughs) it's not that complex. Um, And the only other thing I'd say about the internet industry that I think is the common misperception, and this is more industry stuff, is uh, this common weird thing that I hear where people think that Colo is dying. I think that's hilarious. Um, you know, I, I mean, we could talk about that for another half hour, but um, that's, that's a big misperception. I think that's still out there. Um, that is a conversation that I hope we do get a chance to talk. Another <laughs> sure, <half hour>. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when I even had a client once tell me, so are you afraid that cloud computing is going to, you know, take over and, and make data centers obsolete? And I just kind of had to stop. I just couldn't help myself and laugh. And I was like, where, where do you think the cloud lives? <laughs> Walk me through the logic of that, like where you're coming from with that question. But we, we won't go on that other half hour long tangent. Okay. <laughs> um, what, what is something that you've learned that um, kind of blew your mind as you started to work in and around this this space, this industry, the data center space? Blew my mind? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. Because I feel like whatever it was probably happened a long time ago. It's harder to blow my mind these days. <laughs> 
Um, but just, you know, honestly, I think the things that I find the most fascinating are the things that I understand, that I know the least about. And so I think the things that really blow my mind are things like transatlantic cables, right? Like what's involved in doing that. That stuff really I find truly amazing. But um, I don't know that I have a great example of that, unfortunately. Yeah, one of my one of my the favorite comment, you know, one of those moments in my life where I can close my eyes and tell you exactly where I was. I was at mm-hmm. um, the PTC Pacific Telecommunications Conference at some you know shindig around a pool with the ocean in the background and talking to a woman whose job was to literally architect those trans-Pacific cables, and she was oh, wow. talking to me about the science behind how they determined where to drop the cables, and I was just like, it just it dawned on me at that moment how deep down so many different rabbit holes you can go in our industry and keep going and going for an entire career and never fully understand it. Right. Um, what was the first data center that you ever walked into? And do you, do you remember the first data center that you ever walked into? That's a great question. Here's what I can tell you about it, whether it was the first or the second and the second was the first, um, that it was, probably really a telco data center rather than like an official data center, right? Because back in the day, it was just so interesting. You know, we were busy selling these connections. That's what paid our bread and butter. And eventually, as as PSINet grew, we sort of had this idea like, hey, we're taking up all these space in these, um, you know, these hotel, you know, these telco, uh, these hotels and these pops that we're building, why don't we rent out some of the space? So that was probably um, the, the first example of the data centers that I saw. Um, and then I think the first, yeah, I think that's what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't nearly as impressive as the data centers I go into today. They were just, you know, they were older and, um, and a little bit more multi-purpose <laughs> than they are today. The original telco switching facilities. Yeah, right? exactly. All right. So what is the backdrop on your laptop right now? Uh, it's a picture of my husband and my daughter. Yeah. So it's cute. <laughs> the people that I asked this to have like yeah. whatever the Apple or Microsoft, you know, default backdrop is. Really? It's, yeah. It's kind of stunning to me, but someone explained to me that like they have applications open all the time. So they're never. Well, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. I have multiple screens. So at least when I have a backdrop like that, if, you know, one of the screens will at least have the picture on it. <laughs> so yeah, it makes are it a little you, more fun. Are you a Mac or PC gal? I am a PC gal, but I am not a religious. I'm not religious about it. You know, I, I have iPhones and I think back in the day I had a few Macs. I can go either way. But my husband used to work at Microsoft. So now we're sort of, I've sort of been won over. All right. Uh, last question, actually, second to last question. What is one thing that you wish you knew back when you first started working at PSINet that you know now? Like, if you could go back to yourself yeah. right when you started out and say, Sheila, you have to just know this before you All right. keep going. This is an easy one for me to answer, but I'm telling you, if I had told myself this, I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> But it, it, it's going to sound a little hokey, but I, I could not mean it more. Do not worry so much. Everything is going to work out fine. I, I cannot tell you how much stress I, I carried with me for like the first decade of my career. Just a ton of, I just worried a lot about everything that was going to happen. And I don't know if that was an age thing or just a, a you know, where I was in my life or, or the work, but if I could go back and tell myself not to worry, 
that it was useless energy being spent poorly. Um, I wish I could do that. That's good advice. And that's almost verbatim what I would tell myself. But to your point, mm. I probably would tell myself to go fuck myself. That right. I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> I- about. I think I thought back then that worrying was actually productive. I mean, if, if there's any young people listening to this right now, nothing could be a bigger lie than that. If you think worrying and stressing out is somehow helping your career, you're insane. It's, it's not. It's doing the opposite. Uh, and then the last question I have for you is, do you love data centers? Do you love data centers? <laughs> I love them. There's, you know, I do think they're a little cold, so I usually have to wear a sweater. But I, I love them. I love data centers. <laughs> well, with the new with the new standards coming out, you know, almost every two three years, yeah, it might get a little warmer in there. Getting a little warmer. Well, Sheila, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. This was a great conversation that I know our our listeners will love, and I'm sure it won't be the last time that I talk to you. Hopefully, in the near future. Oh, I had so much fun. Thank you for uh, for asking me. Appreciate it, Sean. Peace. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.